Welcome to Think Business Futures. On this episode, we're talking about the business model behind academic publishing and the subsequent response for researchers around the world. Most of our listeners who work in academia will be familiar with the research publishing process. Publishing research is really part of the job. But for listeners outside of academia, you might be surprised how the business of academic publishing actually works. Nicole was recently in Canberra where she interviewed a PhD student at the ANU about access to academic research. My name is Ros Attenborough and I'm at the moment a a visiting PhD student at ANU. I'm doing my PhD at the University of Edinburgh. What's your PhD on? It's on the topic of openness in science in a very broad way and this includes lots of different developments in the last 20 years or so including open access, open data, and other things with open attached to them. To get us going, who does the research that sits behind a lot of the stuff that we see published in academic journals? Yeah, I'm familiar more with the academic side. So you've got people at all different levels of academia, so students, uh, people who've done their PhDs, people who are have been professional academics for many years, professors, and then you probably get people from industry. You tend to get people publishing who have some sort of professional association or university association but you sometimes get freelance people publishing as well yeah okay so they're the ones doing the research um but then who actually writes the articles in my experience mostly the same people yeah so this would contrast say in other domains people who kind of create content for example might be different from the people that they write about but in academia it's the people who the people making the content are the academics themselves so then they do the, they do the research, they create the content. Uh, this appears in an academic journal. Now, most of these academic journals are like peer-reviewed. What does that mean? So peer review is a process that sort of evolved over many decades, but it's when people who are perceived as being experts on the thing that the article is about, usually other academics, are sent the article and they have to give an expert opinion on it and tell you whether it meets the the standards for publication of the journal and journals have different standards but they're often looking they're looking for rigor they're often looking for novelty they're looking for a big contribution to the field that kind of thing are these experts these people doing the reviewing uh are they are they paid in my experience most often they're not paid this is often in in sort of western countries that i'm aware of i think there are some countries where there is an expectation that peer reviewers would be paid but often, it, often it's sort of free labour. Yeah. And then we have we, the journal itself will have editors. Um, who are these people? Often they are also academics. So they might be similar people to peer reviewers, but they've maybe developed a bit more status in their field and they've been recruited to edit for the journal. And sometimes they are professional editors working for a publishing company. Okay, so we have in that, that's kind of all on the production side. So we have these academics who are doing the research um, as well as oft, as well as kind of individuals as well. Uh, but the academics will also tend to review each other's work as well as often edit the journal themselves um, even though there, and there might be some professional editors as well. But this research tends to not be um, kind of freely available. It's typically like the researcher sits within most academic journals tends to be owned by someone. Who's that? So often the research in traditional journal systems is owned by the publisher and uh, authors will be signing over their copyright to publishers. And I think the direction we're going in is that this is often challenged now, so quite a lot of journals don't work in that way anymore. So on the one hand, you have 
all the content that appears in an academic journal, be it like the doing of the research, the writing of the article, the reviewing and providing kind of editorial feedback on the article is all coming largely from academics who might work in universities or public science institutions. Uh, so in one sense are being subsidised by the taxpayer there. So they're the ones creating the stuff that goes into the journals. And yet on the other hand, the people who are paying for the journals are the very same universities who are now paying to access this content. And this is all sitting within the realm of the of the, the, the publisher is one that gets to own it and it gets to own the copyright and collect this content for free and get all this revenue, they must be making huge margins. Yeah, so I believe the profit margins are pretty extensive and pretty extraordinary when you compare them with some other industries. There's an interesting kind of history here. My belief is that from about the 1960s, journals that were typically run by society publishers, so these are sort of societies, communities of scientists and researchers, they'd have these journals, but from about the 60s onwards, uh, big commercial publishers noticed that there was a profit opportunity there because each of these, these journals and these articles is a unique product, so they can buy them up and increase the profit margins on them. So the way, the way those business models work in traditional journals is by subscription. So, And generally, I think most of the money comes from university libraries who have big subscription deals with the publishers, uh, and those are often quite expensive. Uh, or you'll often find if you Google an article and you reach a kind of what is called a paywall, you'll maybe have the opportunity to pay an individual fee to access that article, uh, which can also be quite expensive for a single article. So if you think about academic publishing like a market where you've got supply and demand, Roz is on the supply side. So as a researcher, and particularly an early career researcher, she's got incentives to get her research out into the marketplace. That means being published in reputable journals in her field. So let's fast forward to publication. Let's assume that Roz is fortunate enough to have her research paper published in a great science journal. The paper's been reviewed by her peers after multiple drafts. She's had lots and lots of long rewrites, late nights, weekends, and now it's been sent to the printer. Now let's imagine the latest edition of the Science Journal article that contains Ross's article is made available. So you now have the supply of the journal. Who's the customer in this case? So I'm the Director of Library Resources and I've been there for almost 10 years now. And the Resources Unit covers our collections. So we're the people responsible for acquiring and managing both the print and the electronic collections of the library. I went straight to the source and spoke to Belinda Tiffin at the UTS Library. Given that broad area that you're responsible for, can we drill down into an academic journal? Mm-hmm. So how would the UTS Library acquire access to a single academic journal? Well, a single academic journal would actually be quite unusual these days. So what we would tend to do is evaluate large data sets or packages and make a decision on purchasing based on the cost and then match with the research and teaching and learning profile of the university. So so you've got this package of journals. Is there different prices for the journals that sit within that package? Absolutely. But depending on the supplier, there's different levels of transparency. 
So sometimes you might see a title list with each title given a price, but sometimes you'll be given a kind of average title price within the package. Um, And often one of the things the publishers is selling to us is the volume, the quantity. So often we'll know there are things in a package which perhaps aren't a good match for our academics or our students, but there's a lot in there that is, and they're generally difficult or impossible to unpick the package. Wanting to subscribe to just one individual title can actually be quite difficult. So is there areas that are generally more or less expensive? So for example, I don't know, business journals as opposed to health journals or engineering journals? Absolutely. There's huge differences. Generally, the STEM, the science, technology and medicine journals are the most expensive. The arts, fine arts, humanities are the cheapest. Um, I think the latest research, uh, the Library Journal of America does an annual journal price um, survey. And I think the latest figures coming out of them is around five to $6,000 per title is the average cost of a science journal. And these are US dollar prices, uh, down to, I think, around 100 for the fine arts journals. One of the things with these models is their annual subscriptions for online journals. So back in the print era, obviously, we purchased the journal, the library owned it. Generally, what you're now doing is paying an annual license fee. So you're, it's an ongoing cost year on year. Depending on the deal with the publisher, sometimes that includes perpetuity rights, which means if we cancel in future, we will still have access to those titles we paid for. Some cases it is only a subscription, so if you cancel, you'll no longer have access to any of those titles. That's actually very interesting. I was reflecting back on when I started as a research student, which was a long time ago, um, and I would go to the library and pull out the journal off the shelf that the library had bought and then photocopy the article that I was interested in marking up and so on, and presumably the library then owned that journal so I could use that any time but what you're suggesting is there are instances where if you don't buy the subscription all that prior 10, 20, 30, 50 years of research that sat within that journal was then lost to the institution. That can be right in some cases, yeah. So how often would the library then have to purchase these academic journals? How does that work? So it's really a year-round process these days. Um, So we're constantly throughout the year um, renewing. Occasionally we'll do multi-year deals if we can get a good deal Uh, because something we need to bear in mind is that uh, while the annual cost can be mind-blowing in and of itself, there is also an annual increase. And again, if you look at the figures the Library Journal comes up with, the average increase for the last... probably around a decade now, has been around 6% per annum. So every year, the cost of your journal subscription is going up around 6% on average. Given inflation has been pretty low in the last decade or so, that seems abnormal. It is, um, and we do try and have those conversations with some of our suppliers sometimes. Uh, The argument from the publisher is it's not linked so much to inflation. There are other factors like their costs, that they are running software, they're making improvements to the search interfaces and so on. So they look at it as their business costs are increasing that much per year. Um, But unfortunately for a library, 
our budget doesn't tend to go up 6% per annum. I can imagine. So to to give us a feel for this then, what percentage of a budget's and uh, a library's annual budget would typically then be spent on these journal databases that you described. It can vary widely for libraries, but generally you would be expecting at least 50% of your total budget would be going on your collection. Did you just say 50%? Yeah. So of all the people that are employed in the library and all the other costs with running it and everything else and all the service that's provided for, say, in UTS's case, 40-odd thousand students, I think, you're saying about 50% is on journal databases. That's right, yes. That seems like a lot to me. It is a lot, um... But that's that's the cost, and obviously those databases and our collections are extremely valuable to our staff and students, so it's what we have to do. And I guess, you know, the point you made is that funding for research and funding for universities is not increasing, so uh, you've got an increasing cost of providing the service that academics and students need in an environment where the costs that are given to the universities that pay for things are reducing. That's That's, right. That's a real challenge for the library, yes? It absolutely is. And it's a bit of a catch-22 because what that means is we constantly have to assess the collection, look at what's performing, try and identify anything which isn't being used and cancel that so we can keep supplying um, collections. But all of that, of course, also takes staffing time. But this is why we're seeing around the world a lot of Libraries, large libraries, Harvard, University of California have all done this, actually publicly uh, make very large cancellations with some really big suppliers, um, driven by the fact that it's just not economically sustainable to continue the way they are. So is this related to the uh, emergence of open access and you know, open access journals and, and so on. Could you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so absolutely. The genesis of the open access movement was, which was sort of 2008, 2009, I guess, 2011 was the kind of Budapest open access initiative that really documented that. Um, and the OA movement was all about trying to address this problem, uh, this spiralling problem of the costs of journals and the unsustainability of that and find new business models which would be more sustainable. So could you tell us a little about how academics then can use open access to self-archive their work and also perhaps a bit about Opus, which is a pretty interesting thing that you provide? Yes. So academics who want to participate in the open access movement and make their research openly available. I've got a few options, and one is what's sometimes referred to as the green OA route, which is self-archiving or essentially depositing a copy of your work into an institutional repository. And here at UTS we call ours OPUS, um, which is the repository for UTS publications. And what it means is an academic can publish wherever they choose in a traditional journal if they like, but they can give us a copy of their work. We'll make it available in Opus. And Opus is indexed by services like Google and Google Scholar. So anyone who searches on that author or on that topic will find and be able to access 
a copy of that work. Okay, so presumably then if the researcher is a bit more proactive, then they can get their research into this sort of forum in which then someone external can access it without necessarily having to pay these very high fees to access the research through a database. That's true. But it does require a bit of work and awareness from the research, and that's one of the barriers to to self-archiving. The main one is that the researcher needs to be aware of what they're signing away when they make an agreement and publish with an academic publisher. Traditionally, what they do is they sign over their copyright. The publisher owns that. And in many cases, that means that the academic can't then deposit that work in a repository or do anything else with it. Um, They do have options to uh, ask for amendments to the agreement, and they can also use what's called the accepted manuscript version. So the final published version is the one that the publisher has the rights to and often will say, no, you can't do anything with that. The accepted manuscript is the version which has been corrected, edited, but hasn't been finally formatted. Generally, in, for most publishers, they'll say the academic can deposit that in a repository. Why do publishers have such a tight control over research? Probably part of it is just historical. The academic publishing industry, as we know it, has been around for about 350 years and worked quite well for a lot of those. Uh, So they're very well established there. There's a system that everyone knows and it's advantaged everyone for a long time. It was really probably the shift to online publishing and the internet which produced such a sudden change and such inequities in the system. We went from an occasion where there were costs to produce a print journal and libraries would purchase only the print journals that they really wanted and could afford. When we went online, there was no cost really anymore to producing print materials. There's no cost to storing them. Um, And what publishers and libraries, to be fair, mutually agreed on was what was called the big deal. Publishers would throw in all of their titles for what was a, a relatively cheap fee if you looked at it on a per title basis. Libraries bought into that. We got tons of content, but it locked us into a big spend with publishers. And now we've got a lack of flexibility. Um, and I think that as, as you know, profits have grown for publishers, we've become this sort of self-perpetuating monster. Well, I guess the other thing is, given that taxpayers have paid for this knowledge, this presumably is community knowledge, and so therefore should be accessible by the community rather than you know someone having to pay $30 for a journal article if they think it might be interesting or relevant. Exactly, exactly. It's about equity of access and information and um, there's a geopolitical aspect to it as well. In Australia, we're a relatively well-funded academic sector. If you look at less well-funded institutions, if you look at developing nations, if you look at much of the global south, there's huge inequity here. It's impossible for people to get access, for researchers to get access, not just to read, but also to publish in these journals. There's huge barriers of access. So there are real economic and social issues here. 
So why don't the universities then just get together or individually just go, well, this we're not playing in this game. We're not doing this. I think it, it's a, such a, a established process that it is hard to see how we're going to, to make that change we need to. There are movements happening. Um, at our own institution, we have our repository. We also have our own open access press. So we're trying in our own way to provide some outlets which are alternatives. And if you look, particularly in Europe, there's some interesting things happening like Plan S, which is a lot of um, especially research funders, non-government research funders in a lot of cases, who are trying to mandate that researchers who are grant funded are going to publish and make their work available to try and start circumventing the existing system and kickstart the open access movement. It's interesting. So there's moves afoot, change may occur. Definitely. I'm quite an optimist about it. I think the open access movement to be fair, probably hasn't moved as fast as some of us hoped and would have liked. We haven't kind of had the revolution we thought might happen. But there are definitely things happening. There's changes in academic attitudes, which I think is probably the most important thing, because at the end of the day, this is all driven by researcher behaviour. Where do researchers choose to publish their work? Who do they want to deal with when they're editing and peer reviewing? Are they going to deposit their work in a repository? If researchers understand the issues and change their behaviours, then we will start to see the system change. Thank you so much for talking with us today. We're very grateful. You're very welcome. Thank you so much for your time. I think this is a good time to look more specifically at open access. We've heard Roz refer to open access in science, which is at the basis of her PhD, and Belinda mentioned open access movement as a response to the high cost of academic journals for university libraries. Jason, you've been talking about open access and that side of the story for some time now. How did you come across open access? Well, uh, I guess, firstly, I benefit directly from open access, actually, on this show. Uh, In order to produce this show, you know, I have to access academic research that we base each episode on. And without these open access repositories, I wouldn't be able to, you know, dive into that research and try to turn it into a story. So... I have a direct benefit from open access, but I actually first heard about the idea of open access uh, when I found out about Aaron Schwartz. Do you remember Aaron Schwartz? Yeah, I was quite touched by that. Mm. Yeah, he was the one who uh, downloaded uh, thousands of uh, academic papers from JSTOR at MIT, uh, and then he was prosecuted uh, in, I think it was 2011. And more recently, I came across, actually while researching for this episode, I came across a closed Facebook group called Ask for PDFs from People with Institutional Access. That's pretty interesting. (laughs) Yeah, it's pretty self-explanatory, right? Very, very uh, succinct title. But anyway, I, I started reading some of the posts in the group and the discussions around academic journals as gatekeepers, sort of, and how that knowledge should be publicly available. I remember feeling that way as well and thinking, why is it wrong that Aaron Schwartz downloaded these files. So it got me thinking about what open access looks like in Australia and what the formalized open access environment looks like. So I spoke with the director of the Australasian Open Access Strategy Group uh, about what that looks like here. 
My name's Ginny Barber. I'm uh, the director of the Australasian Open Access Strategy Group. Um, I'm based in Brisbane at QUT, uh, where I also have a, a job where I work between the Office of Research Ethics and Integrity in the library. We've heard from an early career researcher about what it's like to publish in an academic journal, particularly the fact that essentially they're creating free content. Then we heard from Belinda Tiffin from the UTS Library, who spoke about the massive costs in order to gain access to these journals. And that led us to the idea of the global open access movement. In an article several years ago in the conversation, you said when Stephen Hawking's PhD thesis was made publicly available for the first time, and I think this was in 2017, uh, the surge in public interest crashed the server. And as you said, this was a brilliant example of the appetite for open access scientific information. So Jenny Barber, can you tell me how did we get here? Where did open access start? Well, open access has really been around for, you know, since the internet started. In fact, really beyond before that, actually, in that um, groups like physicists have been sharing their information really widely and among themselves since uh, the early 1990s. But open access really took off in the early 2000s when uh, really the internet came came online. We were... It, became possible to share information in a way that was different from previously, which had just been, you know, through um, publications in peer-reviewed journals, but which were primarily print. Um, and the early um, discussions and statements on this, there were three in the early 2000s, all, called, all starting with B, Bethesda, Berlin and Budapest. And they came from the aspirational idea that, you know, we had this new technology, we had an aspiration to make research open to all, and we could actually now do it and in I, a way I that we just hadn't that, really you know, been Australia able to do. Australia has actually been leader um, in this right from the very media. beginning. One of the people who attended the very early, um, the, the Budapest meeting was Tom Cochrane, who was then uh, based at QUT. And he um, was part of early conversations along with people from Harvard and really from and from across Europe as well. Um, and that led him to coming back to Australia. And QUT became the world's first university to have an open access policy um, through its repository. And, and it was a mix of academics and it was a mix of um, people who worked in libraries. So, for example, I PLOS, for example, which was started by Harold Varmus, uh, Mike Eisen and Pat Brown. Harold Varmus was head of the NIH at the time and Pat Brown and Mike Eisen were people who'd worked for him. So it was a good and interesting mix of academia and, um, and leadership amongst the... Um, the more of the professional side of publishing. Uh, and now I want to speak a little bit about the work that you're doing because you're working towards this goal with FAIR in mind. And you're the director of the Australasian Open Access Strategy Group. Can you tell me what that is and what, what do you do there? Yeah, so we're a membership organisation of 19 universities in Australia and um, eight universities in New Zealand. And also we have as affiliates the Creative Commons in Australia and in New Zealand. And in New Zealand, the Creative Commons group is known as Toa Toa. And we basically work towards developing policies at a national level, um, but also providing support for open access practitioners um, and trying to raise the awareness of open access more generally. Um, and the key thing that we would really like to see is a national approach to open access in Australia and in New Zealand. Um, and the reason we take that approach is that the countries that have made the most progress within open access globally have have developed strong national approaches with you know clear statements and roadmaps um, and have decided this is a priority for them. So in an ideal world, what 
does an open access research environment look to you? Yeah, well, so that's that's really comes to the heart of what we're we're all doing this for. And there is a couple. And I, I will introduce another acronym here, so apologies for that. Which is it? Which is FAIR, which stands for Findable, Accessible, Interoperable, and Reusable. Um, and this sort of set of terms was used originally to describe data, but you can actually use it to describe all the outputs of research. Um, and what it means, for example, is that you you know exactly where, and so findable is you know exactly where to find it. So it's got a unique identifier. And that's really important because one of the things that we know about websites, for example, is that they often, the links go down after several years. So unique identifiers are very, very important. Um, accessible means that uh, actually somebody can get to it. So that really means open access, but sometimes it might mean mediated access, for example, for clinical data, you wouldn't make that all openly available. Um, interoperable means that you can look at the, the work and it's not just in a straight PDF, but it's in a format where you can analyze it. And then reusable applies to having a license on it, which spells out exactly what you can do with a piece of work. And that's where the Creative Commons licenses come into it. So an ideal world really has fair research outputs, which are openly available. Fair and open is a really nice concept. And it means that, you know, if you're a researcher working, say, um, in Australia, you can find a piece of research that's done by colleagues elsewhere in the world. You can see the data set that's associated with it. And it's in a place where you can actually perhaps go and uh, reanalyze that data yourself to do further research. Okay, so... I want to end on a positive note. Where do you expect the open access landscape? What, what do you expect it to look like in, say, 10 years? I think what we're doing is we're going we're gonna to move from um, a closed ecosystem, which is pretty complex, to one that's open, but also complex. Um, I think that's great. I think we want to see a diversity of models. What we absolutely don't want to do is tie people back into the types of constraints that they've had in the past. And we're seeing things like, for example, preprints, which are new innovations in publishing that we'd never imagined 10 years ago would take off. And they really have been embraced by academics. We're seeing um, more open peer review, all sorts of initiatives that are beginning to be adopted. So I'm actually really optimistic. I don't think it's going to look simple, but I do think we are going to look much more open in 10 years time. That brings us to the end of another episode of Think Business Futures. Think Business Futures is produced on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We'd like to pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. We'd also like to thank our producer, Jason Lequier, for his wonderful job at producing the show. And we'd like to express our thanks to Roz Attenborough, Ginny Barber and Belinda Tiffin for their contribution to the show. You can listen to the show on 2SCR.com or you can subscribe on your favourite podcast app. Until next time.